You're listening to I'm So Curious by me, Alicia Herrick. I'm a life and leadership coach, and during this podcast, we explore the curiosities of what it means to be human. Hello, and welcome to episode four of I'm So Curious, and this is Alicia, the host and star of this podcast. Um, I'm so glad that you're here, and today I wanted to talk about, I've been kind of bouncing around a few ideas, and I kind of settled today in particular on a concept called self-compassion. You've probably heard of it, and The reason why this topic is important to me is because I think I had mentioned before, you know, growing up the way that I did and trying to navigate the world um, as a woman, as a biracial person, as a fat person, there are all these ways in which the world, society, people in my family made me believe or instilled or conditioned me to hate myself. (laughs) And I say that kind of laughing now because the absurdity of it is just so, it's so um, horrible that sometimes I, I laugh to keep from crying because this, this sensation or this, this commitment to try to make people literally hate themselves is so incredibly pervasive in our society. And when I say our society, I'm specifically talking about in the United States. And it's really hard to pinpoint exactly where this this kind of story comes from or why. And I think over time throughout my life, I have been really trying to understand why. Why is it that we are conditioned for so, for so many of us conditioned to hate ourselves? And this is true if, um, you identify as part of the LGBTQ community. This is true if you are different essentially in any way to the norm or any way to the standard, which is white, male, Christian. And I say, I call those things out not to denigrate anyone who happens to identify in that way, but to really point out that we are existing in a world that was designed with that paradigm and that kind of model of existence as not only the norm and kind of the the kind of um, what would the word be essentially the baseline for human existence and human awareness and I'll explain a little bit about that in a minute but also that everything in our the way that our society is structured is in comparison to white, male, Christian existence. And so anyone that deviates from that quote unquote norm is the other. And so women, other. Anybody who's not white, other. Anyone who's not Christian, other. And then because our brains and our society likes things to be in boxes and we like comparisons and we need 
uh, in some ways, our our brains are hardwired to want to create very quick judgments. It's either this or it's that. It's good or it's bad. And because of that, our our brains are going to automatically continue down the line of every possible um, expression of humanity that exists. So thin, good, fat, bad, brown eyes, good, blue eyes, bad. These are just, I don't know if that's true or not, but these are just kind of the ways that our brain are going to quickly make those judgments. And those judgments are, they come from so many different places. We can have judgments within our own family structure where um, certain behaviors or experiences or expressions of humanity are going to be seen as less than others. So I'm trying to think of some examples, but it's like, oh, here's a good example. For those of us who grew up and didn't have a lot of money, there was a lot of judgment about people who are wealthy, like, oh, they think they're so much better than us. Or for those of us whose family was not college educated, kind of putting education on a pedestal, like, oh, getting an education is so good. And so all of these different ways of experiencing life as a human, um, our brains and our society needs to, not needs to, but our our brains are hardwired to very quickly place things in good or bad binaries. And because our brains do that, our families are going to do that, and our societies are going to do that. And then <laughs> the beauty of capitalism, capitalism, you know, the whole premise of capitalism is to increase revenue. And so how do you increase revenue? Well, you create a sense of urgency to buy your product. And the easiest way to make people feel a sense of urgency is to make them feel that they are somehow deficient in their existence, in their being, and that they need your product or your service in order to feel no longer deficient, in order to feel whole, in order to feel quote unquote good. And so as we see at the in the middle of the of the 1900s, 1950s, it's like booming capitalism. You start to see marketing geared specifically toward women, um, because while men were making a majority of the money, women have and continue to essentially determine what that money is spent on in the home. Marketers, businesses were not. Uh, ignorant to that fact. And so in the 1950s, you start to see very misogynistic and sexist marketing geared and targeted specifically toward women, but only toward women who they thought could afford it. And so you're going to see white affluent women um, in these marketing materials. And because our world at that time, that was like when the first televisions were coming out, when our ability to see um, images of others on the television from different parts of the world, we were no longer only aware of our immediate circle, but we could see uh, different people from all all over the place. So if all of the marketing and the stories were around 
creating a sense of urgency for white women to buy things because they felt deficient, those were the images and the stories that were going to be in all of our media. And so for generations from the 1940s till now, um, and here and there, you know, we talk a lot about, not we talk, I, <laughs> I have heard a lot of talk about why representation matters. And that's because for so many of us who are not white, affluent women, um, we never saw ourselves in these um, advertisements or in these ways in these representations of of womanhood. And that did two things. First of all, it made a lot of people and women in particular feel as though um, women of color, women who did not identify or poor women, um, that they're, they were again, deficient or, or needing to purchase these services or products in order to feel whole. And that created this idea of kind of like an ideal, a good woman, a good white woman is going to look like, act like, talk like, buy these things. So that created this um, idealized uh, goal for presumably, you know, an, an internalized expectation that all women should be that way. So if you're a woman, you should, you should care about these things. It never parsed out any kind of distinction around, well, if you're a woman of color, if you're a black woman, if you're an Asian woman, you know, here are some things that you're going to need for yourself. There was only one norm and it was a white affluent woman. And so on the one hand, that created this, you know, external idealized version of womanhood that then so many of our grandparents internalized as their kind of internal North Star of of who they want to be in the world, of who they think that they should be in the world. So that's the first thing it did. It created this false image of what womanhood should be. And again, let's remember that this <laughs> was totally intended to make profits. This was not intended, this, this image of idealized womanhood was not, you know, in any way um, <laughs> designed by women, right? It wasn't designed like, hey, this is what women care about. This is what women need. Instead, it was, you know, let's, what can we make women feel insecure about? What can we make them hate themselves about? And then how can we sell them something to make them feel better? And so um, the, that experience in our society has had whew, long-term effects, lasting effects on our collective psyche. And in the ways that we have internalized shame about our bodies, in the way that we have internalized shame about you know, what does an ideal mother look like? What does an ideal um, wife look like? And it has created all types of internalized shame around um, gender and how now, you know, gender is a, is a social construct. So this idea of femininity versus masculinity and how these things are really a spectrum, there was no room for that conversation based on, you know, 
how our how these this idea of womanhood was constructed and let's let's keep that in mind this idea of womanhood was deliberately constructed to sell products so we have to keep that in mind and have to remember that that was not an inclusive concept of womanhood motherhood wifehood it it was just a way to sell something to us and so if our grandmothers internalized this as you know, some kind of evidence of their deficiencies, what did that do for their daughters, our mothers? And how did our mothers then internalize that shame of deficiency? And then how did we, as the daughters and granddaughters of those women, internalize the shame of our own deficiency? And we see now that um, over time, you know, capitalism is still a significant part of our society. And so the old uh, ways of marketing are still useful, right? Let's create a false sense of urgency. Let's create um, this notion that people are somehow deficient and that they need our products in order to be good. And probably around the early 2000s, mid 2000s, um, marketers got wise to the fact that men also have insecurities. And when we look at these um, patterns in our society or we look at these trends, there's tons of evidence to correlate that the rise in um, uh, eating disorders among young women directly correlates to the rise in you know, these kind of marketing tactics. And we see in the mid 2000s that there's a significant rise of eating disorders in men for the same reason. Marketers are preying on our insecurities. They're trying to convince us that we are deficient in some way. So we need to buy their products. And this exists in every single industry. So if you um, are overweight, get on this diet. If you are struggling with acne, buy this product. And so there's all of these ways in which we have been conditioned and socialized to believe that we are inherently deficient in some way and that there is an urgent need to solve that deficiency. And for me, as I mentioned before, not only was I raised um, as part of this intergenerational sense of deception of self uh, through my mother, through her mother, and so on, through my grand, through my grandmother and through my father and so on. Um, you know, it's inescapable. It's so pervasive in our society. So of course, by the time I reached adolescence, oh, there are so many things I hated about myself. And we carry those things with us into our adulthood. And at some point, if we don't deal with them, they they really are constantly running in the background. You know, you shoulda, coulda, woulda. If only you were. When you do this, then you'll be good. And we create all of these conditions in our experience and in our minds about our value. So I'll tell you my own personal story. I've been overweight since I was nine years old. <laughs> and I think in an earlier podcast, I dis I disclosed that I'm actually healthy, like I have beautiful, perfect blood work. Not that that matters. And I don't want to reinforce this um, 
any assumptions one might have about body fat and health. But the truth is, is that in my family, I remember when I was 15 and, you know, I went to a funeral, unfortunately for a relative and my grandmother was with me and I had expressed to her, you know, I was feeling, you know, super insecure about my weight. I was feeling so ashamed and feeling like no, no boy was ever going to want me or date me or care about me. And she had taken me to this relative's house. There was people throughout my whole family there. And she pulled me aside and she said, Alicia, I want you to pay attention. Do you see how there are thin people in our family? And there are fat people in our family. There are bigger people in our family. There, there's nothing wrong with them. We just have big people and small people in our family. And she tried really hard to make it clear to me that, look, there's nothing wrong with you, right? But I still could not escape the grip of the social conditioning that I was not good enough and that I was not sexy, that I was unattractive and that no man would want me because I was fat. And oh my gosh, that story, it stays with you. It sticks into your psyche. And because of that, I had all of this shame and all of these judgments around food, about exercise. And then compounded with that, I suffered from chronic back pain. And people would tell me, you know, I would go to the doctor and they would tell me, oh, you just need to lose weight. You just need to lose weight. Just try, you know, get on the bike and try to lose weight. Except when I would get on the bike, I would have so much pain. I could go maybe just a few miles, maybe 20 minutes. I mean, I think that's, that's good, but it wasn't a situation that felt um, at all empowering. It felt like I was punishing my body, that I was already in pain and that I needed more pain in order to be good. And as I was navigating that whole journey and that whole process of trying to cope with the pain and also being fat, I just finally got to a place where I was like, look, this isn't, (laughs) this isn't working. And it was in 2012 and I was overweight still. I've, like I said, I've been overweight most of my life and I was on a trip with my girlfriends and I brought a pair of shorts and 2012, that was 10 years ago. So I was 24 years old. I was 24 years old. The first time I wore shorts in front of other people. Now, what does that tell you about insecurities? And I remember very um, feeling very empowered that day and not necessarily empowered, but just feeling very sure of myself. And I had said to my friends, like, this is a new revelation. Guess what? I've decided to stop hating myself. <laughs> and that was kind of the first um, commitment that I made to myself on this journey of self-compassion was, okay, I just got to stop hating myself first. That's like the first step because I was actively hating my body, actively hating everything that I did, constantly judging every bite that I put into my mouth. And so taking that first initial step of saying, okay, I'm not going to hate myself anymore, opened up another Um, step in the process, which was when I was able to stop hating myself, 
I was able to move toward accepting myself. And sometimes people get confused with this concept of acceptance versus being complicit. Um, And I want to stress that when I talk about acceptance, what I mean is really just understanding and accepting things as they are without a judgment. You can still want to change. That doesn't mean that you're complicit and that you're kind of given up like, okay, I've accepted it. Nothing's going to change, whatever, because I think that that still holds a sense of judgment with it. Like, uh, it sucks. I'm just going to accept it and move on. And there's this kind of energy around that, around kind of defeated, being defeated, feeling deflated, feeling like, you know, whatever it was that was challenging you has won and you have lost. So you might as well just accept it and move on. And that's not at all what I mean when I say acceptance. What I mean by that is Alicia, this is your body and you get one body in this life. And this is the size of your body today. And that is what it is. (laughs) And let's like think of it more neutrally. Like this is just what it is. My body is exactly what it is. It's in shape. It's in size. And okay, it is what it is. Instead of, of willing it and wishing it to be something that it wasn't, just really truly looking at it for what it is and just telling the truth about it, right? saying, this is exactly where my body is today. And after I was able to really accept my body for what it is, I was able to move toward appreciation. How can I appreciate my body, right? Again, like I mentioned before, I had been suffering with chronic back pain for so long that being grateful for my body was new. And so even... um, you know, I would feel so angry and depleted and just exhausted by living in pain that I didn't have any space for gratitude. But I started doing kind of little things, and I'll definitely credit my mom to this because um, I grew up in the Tendikyo religion, as I mentioned before, and one of the tenets in the faith is gratitude. And so when I was young, um, and especially gratitude for the body. And so when I was young, my mom would say things like, Alicia, be grateful that you have two hands and two legs that you can do the dishes when I didn't want to do the dishes. And that would piss me off because what kid wants to do dishes, right? But she'd be like, you need to be grateful and express your gratitude by doing the dishes with a smile on your face. And I was just like, roll my eyes as far back as I could. But, you know, I think my mom was really trying to get me to understand that the body being able to breathe on its own, being able, for those of us who are able to breathe on our own, I think this last year in particular with COVID and how it affects the lungs, oh, I think so many of us have a newfound appreciation for our ability to, for our lungs to function properly and to function effectively for the needs of our bodies. And so being able to be grateful and appreciative of that simple thing that so easily could be taken away from us. And I think this last year in particular has really demonstrated how vulnerable 
um, these types of human functions that we often take for granted, how vulnerable they truly are and how susceptible they are to um, illness. And so, you know, I think, you know, looking back and also being here now, I think it's even more important to continue that practice of appreciation for the body. Um, like I said, you get one body and as far as I know, not everyone can afford, you know, cybernetics for (laughs) replacement parts just yet. Um, so in this experience that we have right now, the question that we can pose is like, how can we be grateful just for the little things like being able to breathe on our own, the fact that our heart is beating, um, that our systems are regulating, or if your body is not um, functioning in an ideal way or in a, in a kind of a most effective or efficient way. Like for me, as I mentioned, my back was not functioning properly in the sense that it, my hips were not placed right. My It was causing constant pain. And so how can you be grateful even though you're in pain or even though it's not working exactly right or, or what you would hope it to be working as? And I think one of the things that I had to do was really just try to be grateful despite the pain, right? And it's like, okay, even though I have pain, I'm grateful that I was able to get up out of bed today. Today was a good day because I was able to get out of bed. And it was just those little things that, again, we take for granted that I was able to grab a hold of and start to really appreciate. And so when we move toward appreciation for the body, and gratitude just for the simple functions of our body, ugh, then we can open up to self-love and self-compassion, really self-compassion and then self-love. So kind of bringing it back to the topic of today, I think self-love will be a whole other episode, but when we think about self-compassion, um, anytime I, I think of you know, exploring or contemplating a concept, I always go for the dictionary definition because I want to make sure that I have like a a deep understanding of the word and that my contemplation or meditation and expansion of that understanding is still in alignment with whatever is, however it's defined. And so the textbook definition of compassion, according to dictionary via Google, is sympathetic pity and concern for the suffering or misfortune of others. And I'm going to replace others with self, so I'll read it again. Sympathetic pity and concern for the suffering or misfortune of self. Compassion. That's what self-compassion is. It's being able to see ourselves in pain being able to see ourselves struggling or having a difficulty or having some kind of challenge and being able to feel sympathetic pity and concern for our own suffering. Self-compassion. That is an incredible feat to be able to do that for ourselves because like I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, There is um, an endless list of ways to hate ourselves and to reinforce this 
judgment and this kind of, sometimes we can even get into the point of, you know, unconsciously or even consciously ridiculing ourselves for our suffering. Like somehow we deserve it. Somehow, you know, we're worthless or some, you know, whatever story that we've made up or or inherited through this society, through this conditioning that has told us that we are somehow again, deficient in some way. And so, gosh, being able to step back and, and see ourselves and see our own suffering and misfortune with compassion is, is such an exquisite gift that we can give to ourselves. And it is also a direct, rebellious, and radical act against the system, the capitalist system and social constructs that are constantly telling us to hate ourselves. So if you want to do something truly revolutionary, you got to have empathy and compassion for yourself. (laughs) What do you think of that? I'm so curious how other people view that, but I feel so strongly that if we can truly, truly live a life of self-compassion and self-nurturing and self-love and self and self-acceptance, then we are living as a direct revolutionary rebellion against the system that is consistently trying to make us believe something that just isn't true and that was never true. It was never true that we were inherently deficient. It was never true that there was something wrong with us. That was just what people used to sell us stuff. (laughs) And so um, I offer these these insights today because, or during this episode, because this year has kicked my ass (laughs) and it has been, I, I feel like I have walked through heartbreak after heartbreak and trauma, especially over the last six months. It's been very, very difficult for me. And doing this podcast is actually an act of self-compassion for myself because for so long, as I mentioned, like so many of us, I had been holding on to this belief that there's something wrong with me and that, you know, my voice doesn't matter, that my perspective is not valued or that I'm not valued or I don't have anything to offer the world. And that is a, a particular type of suffering that I've been enduring And so me stepping up in this way is really um, kind of a a process of me honoring um, the, the gifts that I have, recognizing them, and and giving myself compassion for how difficult it might feel or how scary it might feel or how intimidating it might feel. And then just kind of giving myself the nudge and being like, you can do it, Alicia, do it anyway. And, and kind of cheering myself on a little bit. So this is really for me, a a practice of self-compassion, a practice of self-love And um, as I mentioned before, you know, this is my revolutionary rebellion against this system that's telling us to hate ourselves or telling me to hate myself. And 
you know, how can I stand up against that? How can I push back against that? And so um, just before we end here, I want to offer a technique for um, creating more space in our lives for self-compassion. If you haven't heard of this woman named Tara Brock, I highly recommend checking her out. She's just this incredible speaker and spiritual teacher. And I had seen her work kind of um, throughout the years. I haven't I have not dove deep into her work, but one of my really good friends has, and she's a huge fan of hers. Um, But I I say if that speaks to you, definitely check her out. I think she has some really good stuff to share. But specifically, there's this technique that she came up with, which is called RAIN, R-A-I-N, the RAIN technique. And it's four steps. It's an acronym. And the first, so basically anytime we get triggered by life or like triggered into a fight or flight response or triggered in the sense of feeling that insecurity is kind of getting pushed or that sensation of I'm not good enough or I'm just worthless or I'm doing the wrong thing or I'm bad or any type of negative self-talk. This is an incredible technique to leverage to kind of help redirect that experience into a more compassionate approach. So the first step R is recognize what is happening. So when that sensation comes up, recognize that it's happening like oh shit (laughs) here it is this is the moment that there it is there's the the negative self-talk there's the trigger there's the anger there's the the feeling of insecurity recognize it so recognize that it is happening step one r Uh, step two a allow the experience to be there just as it is who allow the experience to be there just as as it is. And this reminds me of what I had shared before, where that first step for me was to stop hating myself. And really what that is, is a detachment from judgment. Not everything in our lives needs to be um, judged as either good or bad. In fact, a majority of things in our lives are actually neutral. (laughs) There is no good or bad. So I think that sometimes, you know, there's evidence to say that our brains are kind of hardwired to categorize things in a good or bad category as a means of our uh, safety and survival. But we don't live in that reality anymore where we're needing to quickly um, judge things in order to stay safe. You know, you might be in that situation if you're in an unsafe um, social environment, relationship environment. So um, if that's the case, you might still be feeling that heightened sense of fight or flight. Um, and needing to kind of judge things as good or bad. But if you're not in that state, um, if you're not in an, in that type of environment, then ideally majority of your experiences should feel neutral. They're not good or bad. So being able to recognize that you're having a negative thought or a thought that is making you feel like you're not good enough, you're feeling insecure. Again, R, recognize what is happening. Oh shit, here it is. To A, allow the experience to be there just as it is. So just step back and watch it. 
notice it. Okay, there's that feeling. It's saying that I'm a piece of shit for X, Y, or Z. The third step, I investigate it with interest and care. Investigate it with interest and care. And this is kind of that first step into self-compassion is being curious about it, again, without judgment. Kind of like if you were sitting with a friend and they were telling you a story. And so you, you want to be curious about it. You're, you're not wanting to judge them or their story, but you want to be interested and still caring about, you know, what is, tell me more about this. What does that mean to you? How did that happen? You know, what made you make that decision? So again, investigate with interest and care. And then the last step N, nurture with self-compassion to nurture ourselves, to give ourselves that sympathy. So one, so one way this could play out, I'll actually tell you a way this has played out for me in the past. So as again, I said, you know, being fat, being overweight, I had a lot of judgments around food and I would feel this anxiety around anytime I ate anything, especially when I ate in front of people, I would feel like, oh, if I get a salad, then they're going to think that I'm trying to lose weight and I don't want them to think that because I just don't want everything to be about my weight. And then I'm just going to order what everybody else is ordering, like a burger or a sandwich or whatever, just so that I can feel normal, but then also feeling like they're going to judge me for that. Like, oh, she's fat. Why is she ordering that? So it was just like this endless battle I could never win. And I remember... Um, I had gone to an Ayurvedic um, uh, practitioner for a consult and I was sh- telling her the struggle that I was having. And she said, Alicia, what if, you know, you just didn't judge your food before you ate it? You just didn't judge it at all. And so leveraging this technique the way, you know, if I had this technique at that time, I would notice that I was getting into that head conversation of should I eat this? Shouldn't I eat it? So recognize what is happening. Like, whoop, there it is. There's the judgment. Allow the experience to be there just as it is. So I would just kind of be like, okay, you're going through this process. It's happening right now. (laughs) And then I investigate it. I don't have to do this before I order. I don't have to do the investigation um, right in that moment, especially if I'm with friends or anything. But this might be a moment where I tuck away for later and maybe in my journal I'll get curious and be like, okay, so what did that bring up? How is that making me feel? Or even in the moment, if you have that capacity, how is it making me feel right now? Do I care that much about what these people think? What do I really want? What does my body actually need? And then end nurture with compassion. So just giving myself that grace and that love and that compassion and that sympathy and that empathy in the moment. I don't need to say it out loud, but I could say to myself, you know what, Alicia, you are allowed to eat what you want to eat. And it doesn't matter what these other people think. You know, what, whatever is going to make you feel good. If you want to eat a salad, you can eat a salad because that's what you want. And kind of like giving myself a pep talk a little bit. And that's where I would be able to nurture myself with compassion. 
So this is kind of a longer episode. I, I felt it really important to kind of discuss the insights at the beginning. Like, how did we get here? How do we get to a place where we need self-compassion? And there's so many reasons. There's so much of our society kind of built into us. And then there's so much of our society that's built into our families and how that kind of pulls through our, our lineages. And then we wind up here and full of self-deprecating thoughts. <laughs> and so, um, I highly recommend that in any way that you can practice some kind of self-compassion, whether it be through Tara Brock's rain technique, or you go through my process of stopping the judgment, accepting, appreciating, and then loving and compassion and having compassion for the more that we can do that in any part of our lives, you can do it literally with a small thing, whether it's you hate your fingers, you know, the shape of your hands, or you hate your hair, or you hate that your boobs are lopsided, or whatever it is, anything that you are struggling with, just focus on one thing. It doesn't have to be your whole life or your whole body. It can just be one thing and see what happens when you start to cultivate a radical practice of self-compassion. So that is my invitation to you. I would love to hear um, more. If, if you do start this journey, I would love to hear about it and, and talk with you about it. So I, I'm not sure if there are comments available on these podcasts, but I think I set it up to where you can leave voice messages for me. So feel free to send a message my way. I'd love to hear from you. And thank you so much for listening. I do really value your ear and your time. And with that, um, if you have any ideas for future, future episodes, I would love to hear those too. Um, please follow me on Instagram if you're not there already. I am going to be starting a newsletter here very soon to keep you updated on any new episodes in case you don't catch it on Instagram. So again, thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful week. Thanks for listening to I'm So Curious by me, Alicia Herrick. Tune in every week for more insightful ideas, practical wisdom, and more questions to inspire your own curiosity.